Free stuff is awesome, but free stuff to liven up your bedroom is even better. Go to adamandeve.com, the number one adult toy superstore on the internet, and then when you're at the checkout, enter the offer code TMPP. That's TMPP, as in Thousand Movie Project Podcast, and you'll receive 50% off. So go to adamandeve.com and enter the offer code TMPP. Once again, that's TMPP, as in Thousand Movie Project Podcast. And now, on to the show. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. I don't want to reveal if this happened with my family or with a close circle of friends, and for the purposes of the story, it doesn't really matter. But so let's just say that somebody in my close inner circle, maybe a relative, maybe a friend, was dating a very nice woman named Susie when Susie's brother got arrested for masturbating in public. And the whole situation, if you can believe it, was, uh, was, was even trickier to handle than your usual public masturbator because her brother was apparently very disoriented at the time, as public masturbators tend to be. And nobody knew if he had pulled his cock out at Panera because he was on drugs or if it was something to do with new medications or if maybe it was a sign of some kind of pre-existing medical condition that was flaring up. But as far as my inner circle was concerned, this was not to be discussed. Not one word about it. Because this whole episode of public masturbation had happened at around the time that one would expect somebody to pull their cock out at a Panera. Christmas. So this whole scenario happens shortly before our inner circle, of which Susie is now a consecrated member, was supposed to convene for one of our traditional holiday parties. And what I found interesting, though, is that nobody had to tell us, hey, Susie's coming for the holiday dinner, try not to mention that her brother is a deviant criminal. We just knew not to mention it. We were at this point just conditioned to never mention anything remotely sensitive having to do with anyone's personal life. Because that's the kind of social circle that this is. It's the kind of family we are. When something is wrong, we don't discuss it. What happens instead is that one person calls Mike and says, don't tell anyone, but Susie's brother got a U-Pick 2 at Panera and started jizzing and now he's in the slammer. Whereupon Mike, after agreeing not to tell anyone, he calls Jim and he says, hey, Jim, don't tell anyone, but Susie's brother had a U-Pick 2 at Panera and started Peter Parkering with his cock out and now they've got him locked up in the clink and onward and onward until everybody knows what happened. And everybody knows that everybody knows, but we don't talk about it. Then the holiday party happens. Susie comes in on the arm of our friend, and we all sit down, and, and the general flavor of conversation, as usual, is like, hey, so has anything happened, anything interesting happened to anyone lately? And of course, we are all actively not looking at Susie, who has had something very interesting happen to her lately, but we're not, we're not going to discuss it. And onward, the course of holiday banter makes its way. Little innocent jokes and stories, some friendly catching up, a good spattering of hey, remember when. Or this at least is how holiday banter normally proceeds. Nothing insulting, nothing dramatic, everything very warm and wholesome. And then the party is over. We all make promises of getting together more often, knowing that those promises will go unfulfilled. And the couples, side by side, they say their laborious goodbyes. And then, in the car on the way home, they unspool reams of gossip. And in these journeys home, it's discovered that while there appeared to be no gossiping at the party, it turns out that once the liquor started flowing, there were triplets and pears all scuttling off to the bathroom, to the garage, or to the side lawn, gossiping their hearts out. That is how 
the holiday party would normally unfold. The way it actually unfolded on this particular Christmas is that Susie came in on the arm of her significant other, a person who is a member of either of, of either of my extended family or a circle of friends. The hellos were exchanged, everybody was very comfy, very conversational, and then, maybe a half hour into her visit, Susie came and she leaned on the counter beside me. And we started talking and catching up, and while she's catching me up on her life, she ends up telling me, with a shrug and a sigh and a remorseful wince, that the frustrating cherry on top of all the issues she's having at work and behavioral issues with her young son, she says, you know, I've also got this headache with my family. I'm sure you heard about my brother. And then she goes on without elaborating on what she thinks I must have heard about her brother. She goes on to say that there's family drama having to do with something that her brother just did. But like, am I supposed to know? That he pulled his dick out at a Panera? Did some maybe some maybe she's referring to something else that happened? Like what if she's referring here to the fact that her brother just got a house and she's like, oh, everyone's upset with him. And I'm like, yeah, well, you know, everyone masturbates. But then I thought, if she's really being sincere and she's trying to get something off her chest, I'm gonna completely disrupt the flow of conversation if I pretend not to know the story and then prompt her to tell me the whole thing. So she says to me, Oh, I'm I'm sure you've heard what happened to my brother, and I just nodded. But I nodded with, like, some gravity in my expression, trying to do that Tony Soprano-style kind of condolence. Like, yeah, yeah, I heard, what are you gonna do? And then I was relieved to see that she just kept on talking. Like, didn't seem to pause and try to study my face or anything. She was just being totally sincere, talking about the fallout, dealing with cops, uh, talking with her brother, and getting some kind of help for him. I ultimately surmised, incidentally, that she was referring to the public masturbation. But anyways, I, I remember being struck by her candor and thinking, Wow, I don't, I don't think anyone's ever really showed up to one of these parties and just owned their drama in that way. Because in this very intimate social circle that I'm talking about, we all know each other's drama, we just don't talk about it. Or we don't talk about it with the person that it concerns. We gossip about the person's drama until that person walks into the room, and then that person joins us in talking about someone else's drama. And this is, of course, a very human thing. There's nothing super toxic or evil about it. We're social creatures. We're interested in one another. And we're specifically interested in each other's secrets. We all have secrets that make us feel bad about ourselves. And so we, when we catch a glimpse of somebody else's secret, we want to snatch it out of the air and chew on it for a while because by comparison, it makes our own secrets feel forgivable or inconsequential. But I wonder sometimes if, if our, if in, within this circle of mine, if our reluctance to talk about what's going on inside us, or, or what's going on with our lives in private, does that have more to do with secrecy, a distrust, or, 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 or a fear of the judgment of, of everyone else? Or is it more about the inability to capture those feelings in words? Like, is it maybe just that we so seldom dive into those, like, inner murky waters that, like, we do it so seldom that we can sometimes go our whole lives without ever cultivating a vocabulary for that would help us describe what's going on in there. Like that's I might like that's why poets when when they're talking about, you know, profound human experiences like death or heartbreak or love, whatever, they don't come at it directly because they know enough about words to know that words don't really often do justice to to the feeling. They talk about lighthouses and prostates. You will rarely read a poem that says I am sad. It always says, I am a moo cow in winter with the bloated nipples of want. So while I do sometimes get fr frustrated at the fact that the people in this inner circle, they don't talk about their feelings directly, but I have to remind myself that it's not so easy to open up about these kinds of things, that not everybody is in the habit of doing what, what I do here, just relentlessly broadcasting everything that crosses my mind. Like when you're standing in a crowded bar, for instance, and you suddenly feel 
horribly lonely. And I maintain, incidentally, that loneliness is a feeling that manifests in public way more often than it does in solitude. So you're in this bar, you're surrounded by friends, and you're feeling lonely, and then you say to someone, I feel lonely. Well, how can you feel lonely if you're surrounded by people? You're feeling something, and it feels like loneliness, but the word lonely doesn't seem to make sense in that context. And so you have this feeling, and you have this word, but they just they don't make sense. And they seem to both fit and not to fit. Anyways, so the point is that when you get these urgent feelings, and you want to share them, but you can end up just getting flustered about the fact that nobody gets what you're saying, and so you just give up. You just keep that shit locked up inside yourself because much of you're in your experience, as much as you've tried to communicate the nuances of it, you just can't. And I guess that's how it goes with this social circle that I'm talking about. We seldom discuss our problems in a clear and constructive way, but word of our problems ends up getting around. And we learn about each other's problems and we do covert little things to help each other out. Like if you were hypothetically to join this circle of mine and you were to mention to one person in that circle that you were having rough times financially. Well, you'll probably start getting some casual sounding invitations to dinner. Or you'll get a call of somebody saying, hey, I picked up two pizzas because I thought I was having company. Turns out I'm not having company. I'm kind of near your house. Do you want this other one? So it isn't uncaring. It's not cold or antisocial. It's just that this is just the way that my circle communicates. We communicate by not communicating. But still, years later, I think about the emotional availability, the, the candor, the clear-headedness of Susie when she just pulled up beside me, this new member of the group, she has no reason to trust me, and she just says, hey, I, I'm sure you heard about my brother. She's referring to this very private, problematic issue in her life, and then she just goes on talking about it, like it's no big thing. That she wasn't just willing to share it, but she was capable of sharing it. But I was thinking lately, you know, art, on the other hand, is often deliberately vague. An artist is grieving over something and it compels them to paint a burning train or write a story about a bank heist. Art, by and large, is simultaneously confrontational and evasive. And these are just thoughts, though. I'm not really going anywhere with it. Bro, fuck Michael Myers. I remember watching one of the Halloween movies when I was a kid and not being able to sleep for like a week. I don't even know who let me watch that shit. I would run to the bathroom in the middle of the night because I knew he wouldn't catch up if I ran. My brother wore a Michael Myers mask for Halloween one year and my dad recorded the piano theme song, the teeny teeny, you know, and played it out loud on the stereo while my brother chased me around the house. I've discovered a painter whose work I really like, and his name is Francis Bacon. He was born in 1909, and he lived until the 1990s, and his paintings just ring my bell for some reason. Here's the thing. I don't know fuck one about art, or painting, I should say. I've stood in the company of photographers while appreciating works of photography, and I've stood with architects in looking at buildings, and I've stood with painters while looking at paintings, and they always open my eyes to so much shit going on in front of me that I'm not noticing, things that I would never notice on my own. So I was thinking like, oh, I really like this guy Francis Bacon's paintings, let me get a print of one and put it on my wall. But then, like, the thought of having some romantic interest stroll into my bedroom, of having her approach this, this print on my wall and be like, ah, this Alex guy, he's deeper than I thought, he's got some interesting art on the wall. And that would be nice, insofar as it would make me look more cultured than I am. But what's scary, then, is the idea that she might turn to me and be like, oh, tell me something interesting about this painting. And I would be like, it is blue.
the Buddha says this, what you are is what you have been, what you will be is what you are now. He also says, it is better to travel well than it is to arrive. This is what the Buddha says. I am horrible at math, and I've always been horrible at math. And when I was in high school, uh, my mom hired the services of this independent tutor named George. If you've ever taken a math class in Miami, if you've ever hung out in a building where math classes are taught, you probably know about George. He's got a business card with an alien on it and a banner that says in red letters, Tutoring by George. He's been using the same card for 15 years, and you'll find it pinned on cork boards and taped to pillars and stacked on public tables all around town. When you dial the number, he answers, Hi, this is George. When you greet him at a coffee shop, he shakes your hand and says, How are you doing, dude? And when, during the session, he's watching you attempt a difficult formula and sees you fuck something up, he motions to take the pencil out of your hand, and he asks gently, reassuringly, Dude, what are you doing? I would see George for tutoring on Wednesday nights at the Borders bookstore on US-1 across from Shorty's. Tutoring with George was a fucking nightmare. Not because of anything he was doing, it's just that I never retained anything having to do with math for more than a couple of hours. So I never finished a math class in my life with, more, with better than a C. And once I started going to tutoring with George, my parents were like, well, now we're paying for a better grade. And so suddenly they cared a lot more about my mediocre grades. The, the pressure was just amplified. And also, like, when you're sitting with a tutor and they're trying, they are focusing just on you for an hour. And they're trying to communicate an idea. And you just keep putting the pencil to paper and demonstrating that you have not retained, you have not understood anything they've said. Even though you just nodded somberly while they were giving you example after example after example and asking you if you understood. If you tell me what year you were born, I, I will go on thinking you are six years older than you actually are until you tell me your age. I routinely get huffy and indignant to f like with cashiers to find that you, you, a croissant that costs $2.50 and a cup of coffee that costs $2.50, that amounts to $5, not four and a half. So it was, it, it was just fucking torture to sit there for an hour doing math with this very gentle and charming guy. But despite that, I, I dug those Wednesdays because my brother eventually had to start going to tutoring too. And so I would get an hour with George and then my brother would get an hour with George. And while my brother was being tutored, I would get to wander the bookstore for an hour until our mom picked us up. In 2004, this was like the greatest thing that had ever happened to me because Borders in 2004 had just recently started carrying DVDs. And once a week, I would get to just sit in the movie section for an hour and see what was new. And, and the timing was kind of fortuitous and formative because as I've mentioned in the past, I've always been really into horror movies, probably falling in love with them initially because they were forbidden at my house. And back in 2004, the movie Van Helsing was coming out in theaters. Maybe you remember it. It was like a, it was a big budget action movie with Hugh Jackman and Kate Beckinsale where they fought Dracula and Frankenstein and all the old universal monsters. There's nothing to really celebrate about that movie. It's, it was kind of mediocre, but it meant that Universal was re-releasing their major monster movies on like these deluxe edition DVD box sets to coincide with the release of Van Helsing. So there was a box set for Frankenstein and for Dracula and Wolfman. Initially, when I had no money, I would just go there to the DVD section and I would stare at the cases while saving up my allowance. Finally, after like two months of saving, I bought the Dracula, Frankenstein, and Wolfman box sets for like $100 altogether. 
I, and I think I have mentioned this in a podcast before, but I promise I'm going in a different direction. So the first one I tried to watch was Dracula, but I kept falling asleep. And then I would beat myself up for the fact that I fell asleep, because I thought I was being super like refined and cultured by watching these old black and white movies. The fact that I couldn't stay focused on Dracula made me think, fuck, I'm a loser, I'm stupid. And then I would stew in this self-loathing rut for literally days at a time, thinking that I was somehow disabled for not being able to get through a movie. Or not disabled, because that's not someone's fault. I thought it was something, something I had done to let my brain languish. But that movie, that Dracula from 1931, remained this kind of cinematic Everest that I tried and tried to climb all the way up through college. At which point, fortunately, I had a sense of humor about it. I didn't hate myself, but still. I can remember trying to watch Dracula at least twice in college and still getting no further along in it than I did when I was in middle school. A couple years ago, finally, I came upon Dracula for Thousand Movie Project and I watched the whole movie for the first time in my life after literally like seven concerted efforts to sit down and get through it. And my verdict is that it truly is one of the most boring movies ever made. Dracula, as you may know, is based on a novel by Bram Stoker, which he published in 1897. About 20 years later, director F.W. Murnau got into a fuck ton of trouble because he adapted Dracula without permission from Bram Stoker's estate. He made it into a movie called Nosferatu, which is a silent horror movie, and in some ways it's, it's just as influential as the one that would come out in 1931. But anyway, Murnau adapted the novel without permission, and so the Stoker estate took Murnau to court. The court ruled in their favor, and all existing prints of Nosferatu were ordered to be destroyed. The story goes that there was one print in circulation at the time, and it was just so beloved, and word got out that, you know, it had been ordered to be destroyed. People just started making copies of it. However, you made copies of film back then, I don't know. But that's how it survived to the present day, just narrowly, on the grace of one existing copy. What ended up happening with Dracula from 1931, the movie I couldn't get through, part of the reason it's so fucking boring is that the stock market crashed in 1929, so Universal Studios couldn't afford the big spectacular production that they had wanted to make. So when you watch Dracula today, you might notice that the rooms all look pretty much the same, and that the camera doesn't move around that much, and there really isn't much music, that there just isn't a lot happening in general. And that's because they didn't have the budget that they thought they would. The whole thing was financed, appears to have been financed on like IOUs and sexual favors. So if some hipster ever tells you, oh, the original Dracula is still scary and Nosferatu is still scary, they're fucking lying to you. They're hoping that you are as insecure as I was when I was 13, when I thought that it was some fault of my own intelligence that kept me from appreciating some low-budget movie from 1930-fuck. It is not an enjoyable movie, it is not repulsive, it's not engaging, it's not remotely scary, don't let anyone tell you otherwise. But anyways, so, I had just bought these three horror movie box sets, I couldn't get through Dracula, I hated myself for it, and then I shifted to Frankenstein. Frankenstein is an empirically better movie than Dracula, in every way. And if somebody tells you that they prefer Dracula to Frankenstein, they, what they almost certainly mean is that they prefer the character of Dracula over the character of Frankenstein, which, which makes plenty of sense. The novelist Toni Morrison used to say that one of the things she liked to do in her novels was to put beautiful sentences in the mouths of her good characters, her heroes, because it's always been the case since the Old Testament that evil tends to manifest in eloquence, in seduction and charm. Evil is generally characterized in literature by its ability to capitalize on humans' weakness in the eyes of temptation. And so Dracula, an embodiment of evil, is suave, he's handsome, he's exotic and charming and cool. And it makes a lot of sense that a guy who's exotic and charming and cool would be more enjoyable to watch than Frankenstein's monster, who is speechless in the first movie and then monosyllabic in the sequel. And yet, 
Frankenstein's monster is more nuanced than Dracula, because he's not entirely evil. With Dracula, at least as he's depicted in the 1931 movie, he's, he's just a totally flat, simple character. He's an animal. He's evil. He wants to feed, he wants to fuck, and he, and he seems to get off on the fact that he's hurting people. Frankenstein, on the other hand, feels no real ill will toward anybody when he first wakes up in the laboratory. He's just, he's just really fucking confused. Because think about it, Frankenst Frankenstein's monster is a dead person who's been resurrected, a criminal's brain that's been put into a body that he just assembled from odds and ends. The last thing that Frankenstein's monster remembers is dying. He also probably remembers being in a different body. Now here he is, waking up, it's weeks later, he's in some fucking castle dungeon laboratory while some coked out doctor is screaming in his ear, there's electricity going off in just random spurts all over the room, and nobody even attempts to explain to him what the fuck is going on. So Frankenstein's monster is super sympathetic, but the movie Frankenstein came out the same year as Dracula. 1931. And while it appears to have been made with a loftier budget and a better sense of pacing, it is still pretty dense. It doesn't go down all that easily, and the ending is bizarre. Not, not a fun kind of bizarre, like Bride of Frankenstein, but just, it's very, huh? So I'm 13 years old, I'm watching these two movies, I find that Frankenstein is a little more accessible than Dracula, but still, it's not easy, and so, again, I'm feeling pretty disheartened. I feel like everybody who went to the movies in the 1930s had a better attention span than I do, they knew how to appreciate things better than I do. And then, I watched The Wolfman, which came out 10 years later, in 1941, and The Wolfman might have been made today. It would have been made for TV, uh, because there aren't exactly millions of dollars on the screen, but the picture quality is great, the sets are simple but very detailed, the action is still fairly intense, the camera work is clever, the monster's makeup is still fucking incredible, and the story is really good. It's, it's, it's perfectly accessible. At 13, I was able to understand that whole movie, and there was no point at which I was, like, trying to stay awake. I was perfectly gripped by it. And because it was old, and because it was black and white, and because I had paid attention and enjoyed it, I felt cool, and I felt cultured, and all of the things that I had wanted to feel when I first went ahead and spent my allowance buying these, these box sets. And while I just recently watched The Wolfman again, and when I was 27, I, I didn't really like it. I was struck in a new way by its protagonist, who's played by a guy who came into this world with the name Creighton Cheney, but who was by that point, in 1941 and forever after, indemnified in American pop culture with a different name. It was his father's name. They called him Lon Cheney Jr. It's time for the quote of the week! When the quarantine began, I picked up a book that's been sitting on my shelf for a few years now. It's a novel called Death with Interruptions by Jose Saramago. And it's about what might happen if Death, who's personified in the novel as a female skeleton with a sentient scythe who lives in an apartment with endless filing cabinets, what if Death just decided she wasn't going to let anybody die anymore? And so, on New Year's Eve, she decides to just stop, indefinitely. Lots of philosophical debate ensues, and there's a scene where an apprentice philosopher, and, and that's actually his name throughout the book, Apprentice Philosopher, he's talking with a spirit that appears to him over the water of his little aquarium. Some of, some of the quote is, a, is part of a back-and-forth exchange between the philosopher and this hovering spirit, but I'm just going to pull their sides together and, and make it into a monologue. But here it goes. Saramago writes, Before, in the days when people died, on the few occasions when I found myself in the presence of people who had passed away, I never imagined that their death would be the same death that I would one day die. 
because each of you has his or her own death. You carry it with you in a secret place from the moment you're born. It belongs to you and you to it. So there are many deaths, as many as all the living beings that have existed, do exist, and will exist. The deaths that oversee each individual are, so to speak, deaths with a limited lifespan, subaltern deaths, who die along with the thing that they kill. For Jose Saramago's very beautiful, funny, thought-provoking novel and its ability to complicate our way of seeing things in the most wonderful way, we raise our glasses. Cheers! Anyway, so I watched The Wolfman in 2004, and I was so happy to just be able to understand it. Um, and then I watched it again a year or so ago, and I was surprised to find myself super turned off by it. And turned off by Lon Chaney in particular, who seemed like just this doe-faced lecher. He's awkward and lanky, but he's also burly in a drunken way. I don't know. It's, he was just smarmy. Whatever. I, w I went ahead, though, recently and watched a mini-documentary about Lon Chaney Jr., and they talked a lot about how he lived in the shadow of his father, Lon Chaney Sr. Lon Chaney Sr. was known in Hollywood as the man of a thousand faces. He was a big star of the silent screen and was famous mostly for transforming himself. Chaney Sr. was allowed to apply his own makeup for his major roles, and he created some of the most memorable appearances with The Hunchback of Notre Dame and The Phantom of the Opera. Lon Chaney Jr., born with the name Creighton, was raised by his father to be a kind of average Joe, responsible and well-to-do. And when young Creighton told his dad, no, I want, I want to be like you, I want to be an actor, Lon Sr. freaked out and sent him to business school. And Creighton attended and he passed, and after graduating, he started his own plumbing company, and things were going, going pretty well. He still wanted to act, but he knew that his dad wasn't a fan, so he just toiled in the world of business. Lon Chaney Sr. died in 1930, just before he was able to play what might have been his final role, maybe his greatest role, Lon Chaney Sr. was gonna play Dracula. Shortly after Lon Chaney Sr. died, Creighton's plumbing company folded, and since the timing seemed kind of fortuitous, he decided that since his dad wasn't around to disapprove of it, and since he didn't have many prospects in the world of business, he may as well dedicate himself to acting. And he did pretty well for himself. He got several tiny roles in tiny movies, he, he did some notable stage work, but after three years of trying to make it, and only barely scraping by, Creighton decided to change his name to his father's, Lon Chaney Jr. Then, in 1941, he became the Wolfman, a creature who transforms from a man to a wolf. And a couple years after that, he got the opportunity to play Frankenstein's monster in, in Ghost of Frankenstein. Frankenstein's monster being a man who's turned from a dead criminal into an undead thing. After that, he got a chance to play Dracula's son in Son of Dracula, where he plays a man who's transformed into a bat or the undead. Whatever. Look at it however way you want. Lon Chaney Jr. felt, as a young man, that he had to be something that he wasn't in order to please his father. After his father died, he transformed from a businessman into an actor. When his career as an actor wasn't going as well as it should have, he transformed from Creighton Chaney to Lon Chaney Jr. and went on to become famous for a number of roles where he played men who transformed into other kinds of men. Into monsters, specifically, but, but sympathetic monsters. Like, note, note the fact that he doesn't play Dracula. He plays the son of Dracula, a younger man who's had his identity foisted upon him. And as the Wolfman, same thing. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time and he got bitten by a werewolf. As Frankenstein's monster, too, the same thing. He died as one person, his brain was stolen, and he woke up as somebody else. When I was 13 and couldn't get through Dracula, I went ahead and I watched those other movies in the box set. Dracula's Daughter and Son of Dracula, and I liked them both. Incidentally, Dracula's Daughter is probably the best of the three, in case you're taking notes. 
And then with the Frankenstein box set, I watched Frankenstein and then Bride of Frankenstein and then Ghost of Frankenstein. So across these three box sets, Lon Chaney Jr. is the only one who appears in each disc. He plays all three monsters. He plays those monsters in the only in the versions that my dumbass 13-year-old self was able to follow. And now, 15 years later, I'm puzzling over the little details of the occasion. I feel a certain kind of deep, deep, serious nostalgia for that little period of my life. Going to Borders, a bookstore which felt like it was more my home than the house that I lived in, but then being made to feel like an idiot outsider at Borders because I wasn't there to engage with books but to do math, which I suck at. And then when I got a break from math, I went and I poured over these old movies that I thought would make me feel at home. Except for the most part, they didn't make me feel at home because I couldn't get through them. I couldn't stay awake through Dracula. I had a hard time understanding Frankenstein. The only ones that really seemed like open books to me were the ones starring Lon Chaney Jr., who himself seemed to not fit in with the rest of those universal actors. All of these things do come together in some meaningful way for me, and I'm not sure exactly how to articulate it. But I feel as though, if somebody gives me an hour of their time, as you're doing now, I can present them with the shards of this broken memory, this broken feeling, and without being able to give them an explicit breakdown of why it means so much to me, they can kind of piece it together and feel the connections that I cannot explain. A few months ago, we went to go get drinks on Brickle. Just catching up. I do this shit pretty often. When I'm bored and horny, I'll hit up an ex lake. Hey, what's good? You like food? But so we meet up. I'm Brickle. And no, he looks exactly the same. He talks the same. He acts the same. And that's how I was able to realize how much I had changed. Is that for the first time in years, I sat across from this guy I used to love so much. And now I could barely hold a conversation with him. And what's crazy is we used to get in these fights and say the most fucked up shit to each other. Okay, you're ugly. You're fake. You're this, you're that. But the difference is, I never actually believed the shit I'd say about him. I was just trying to hurt him. But when we were out in Brickle, getting the drinks that day, I swear to God, I suddenly realized that the worst thing I could have said to him at that moment was completely true. And I could have crushed him by saying it. You're not interesting anymore. And it's not that he had transformed. He hadn't, at all. And that was the point. Anyway, I didn't ruin the afternoon by telling him he wasn't interesting anymore. The truth about why I didn't tell him is actually worse than what I would have told him. The truth is... I don't care about him enough to even tell him how boring he is. Okay, so contrary to what I was saying a moment ago about not wanting to have the artist's work on my walls because it would make me feel stupid and so fuck it, I won't pursue it at all. But so I went on YouTube and I watched this BBC documentary about the artist in question, Francis Bacon. And I learned that he was Irish and he was born in 1909 and that in the 1950s and 60s and 70s he was a big figure in the world's art stage, and that he was in this relationship as a young man with an old, with a much older guy who had been a fighter pilot during World War II. And Francis Bacon was a reader of BDSM erotica, and in this particular relationship, it was clear that he wasn't just submissive, he was subservient. His older lover would beat him and demean him and throw him around the house, but Bacon never left. One day, in, in, a, in a particularly horrible rage, this tall, stately lover of his, who incidentally might be fairly compared with the devil, I think, for how his very dapper and handsome and mannered appearance concealed this wild sadism. He goes into this rage and he throws Francis Bacon through a plate glass window of the house's second story. Bacon goes through the glass, falls 10 or 12 feet into the garden below, and his face is pretty much shredded. But then he just got himself stitched up and pretended nothing had happened. Later in life, when Bacon suffered a similarly deep, scarring, corkscrew gash all across his face, he not only refused cosmetic surgery to repair it, although he was at this point a millionaire, he refused local anesthetic for the long period of suturing. 
So Francis Bacon was a masochist of a different order. It wasn't relegated to the bedroom and like the healthy back and forth of like, okay, you tie me up, call me names, smack me around, whatever. No, this was almost pathological. And what struck me most in, in hearing about this period of life is that one of the talking heads in the documentary, a guy who was friends with Bacon at this time and who appears to be in his 80s, he's talking to the interviewer and he's making note of the fact that this was a fucked up, dangerous, toxic relationship that damaged the people who were in it, it damaged the people who were around it, but it had a tremendously beautiful and transformative effect on Bacon's work. I'd gone online and I had glossed over like the scope of Francis Bacon's paintings earlier in that day, and I was really surprised to see that the period of his work that I most enjoyed was the stuff that came out of this extremely violent period of domestic abuse. And suddenly, looking at the art from that period of his life, I began to feel the kind of thing that I tend to bristle at in the art world. Like I'll hear people look like I'll hear people look at a painting of a cat and they'll say the, the painting is tumescent with homoerotic rage and you can feel the erection of the painter and his bloodlust and I'm always like no it's no it's a cat it's just a cat. But now I'm looking at these paintings that Bacon was making during this horrific relationship in the 1950s, particularly this one series he did called Man in Blue, and I'm seeing something kind of familiar not that I am or have ever been in an abusive relationship, but I think everyone's been in some kind of romantic affair where it's like that anec there's an anecdote from a Chuck Palahniuk nonfiction book where he talks about, I think it's like this Navy vessel where like the health crew on board performed CPR on some guy for six and a half hours before giving up and, and, he, and letting him die. I think we've all got at least that one person in our romantic past, ideally it's in the past, where we kept going back and back and trying to resuscitate something that, that should have been left to die. Kept touching the stove, basically. And I happen to have one such experience pretty fresh in my past. And so when I look at this series that Bacon painted, which again is called Man in Blue, you should check it out, I see these very plain, simple images of a man in a blue suit in a dark room, but I also, I also see the experience of which those images were born. It's, it's a man who's dressed in a nice blue suit showing up to a room that's dark and empty, and he's looking at his watch. He's waiting for somebody, somebody who isn't there, someone who's not going to be there, who isn't as dressed up as he is for the occasion. But you look at the painting and you get a sense that the figure in this painting is going to go on waiting for someone who's not going to show up. And it rang my bell. I mean, the, and the way I interpret that idea of the other person not showing up is like the lopsided interest that the two of you can be in the room together, but one of you is showing up to this relationship more than the other. Francis Bacon died in his 80s when, against his doctor's orders, he flew to Madrid to see the very young man, less than half his age, with whom he had fallen in love. A young man to whom he had given $4 million and two paintings. A young man who, after a sexual affair, told Bacon he just wanted to be friends. No more sex, nothing romantic. And Bacon was crushed by this, and as a masochist will invariably do when they find some beautiful thing that refuses to love them back, he went toward this young man. He flew in his extreme old age toward one final heartbreak, and he died there at the age of 82. And there goes another episode. 
I, I go through phases with the editing process, and yesterday I went through sort of the preliminary phase where I just kind of, I listened to the whole thing, and I think the original recording was like a little over an hour. I listen to the whole thing, and I take out all of the dead air, and I just make sure that all of the, um, all the segments are kind of synthesized. And uh, it was a dark night of the soul after editing all that together. And uh, I knew it was kind of an insane mess and I was attempting something thematically that I don't think I totally pulled off. But when I started editing it again today for like the second phase of the editing process, um, I had one of those kind of, if you've ever edited a long piece of writing or a, a video or a piece of audio, you, you, you might know those periods of, it's a mixed kind of blessing where you find an entire limb of of the material that can be just like cleanly amputated and there were two two big chunks of this episode that i was able to cut seamlessly like like six six solid minutes from two different segments and watch it's probably still an irredeemable mess but anyways i i feel like this week's episode is just is is kind of messy but um i'm eager to get into next week's episode which i've already been drafting a little bit i'm hoping to have it done by this coming saturday which i think is april 24th and that is my birthday I will be turning 29 this weekend. So this coming episode is just going to be a retrospective of the past year, what I did while I was 28, and it was a, it's a weirdly haunt, it's, it's almost hauntingly uneventful this past year. Um, and it seems significant for nothing other than the bevy of first dates that I went on and like the huge amount of writing I did. So it's not going to be a particularly eventful episode, I don't think, just kind of meditating on, on how, I don't know. We, I don't know, we'll see. And in the episode for the following week, I'm going to riff for a bit on something that's fascinated me for a while, though I haven't had much occasion to discuss it, which is these documentaries on Netflix about strength and endurance athletes, like the National CrossFit Competition, for example, or bodybuilding or powerlifting. I don't participate in any of that, but for some reason I find it interesting. And also this past week, I finished reading the third volume of Simon Callow's massive Orson Welles biography. The third volume came out in like 2016, and he is presumably at work right now on the fourth and final volume. He's only like 70 years old, and I think he's been working on the book for a few years now. Plus, he's got like three volumes of Wells's life under his belt already, so I'm sure that he knows like how to get into the zone for it. I don't think it'll be one of these books that you wait a decade for. And also, barring any kind of health crisis or freak accident, I don't think there's a risk of his like not finishing, like dying. My favorite YouTuber is a book critic named Steve Donahue. I did a big segment a few episodes back about how he's like influenced my reading and my writing, and he is adamant about the idea that um, these two writers, Robert Caro and George R. R. Martin, are not going to finish their respective series. Robert Caro has been working for almost 50 years now on a five-volume biography of Lyndon Johnson, which I believe was originally supposed to be just two volumes, but he's been burrowing deeper and deeper into Johnson's life, and the books have been phenomenal bestsellers, and they've all won awards, and so the contracts just kept getting renewed, I guess. Caro is in his early 80s now, and he, he's thin as a rail, as Steve insists on pointing out, and he recently published another book uh, last year, which I absolutely loved, called Working. It's all about his years as a newspaper man and then as a biographer, it talks about how he conducts interviews, how he does research, and he, I mean, he just it's very conversational, and he's recounting little bits of wisdom he's picked up. I really love reading portraits of writers. I love any kind of book where it's writers engaging in shop talk, whether they're talking about the craft or the business of writing, or if they're talking about their schedules in particular, their writing routines. I don't think there's any chance of me adopting another writer's morning or evening routine at this point and benefiting from it, but it's it's just this voyeuristic curiosity I, I, I have. Like Don Winslow, for instance, he's my favorite thriller writer, and he wakes up at 5 a.m., he has one egg for breakfast, and he writes through to the afternoon, he takes lunch, and then after lunch, he devotes the next 
four or five hours to researching and outlining the book he's going to write next. And then there are anecdotes of like Maya Angelou writing exclusively in hotel rooms and Mark Twain writing in the tub. But as for Robert Caro and his 3,500-page Lyndon Johnson biography. He made a couple of remarks during this recent book tour about how his editor, Robert Gottlieb, who I think is a couple years older than Caro, um, Gottlieb was apparently pretty pissed that Caro had taken the time off from that Johnson biography in order to not only write, but then spend several months promoting this very slim professional memoir. Anyway, Steve, he doesn't think Caro will survive to finish the biography, which would be tragic, especially since Caro left these specific instructions that if he should die before finishing the book, um, it is to be published as is, if indeed it's to be published at all. Like, nobody is allowed to take up his research and write the remaining chapters. But Steve also says, uh, uh, slightly more controversially, that he doesn't think George R.R. R. Martin is going to live to finish the Game of Thrones series. And that... I think I think Steve is, is right about that one. Martin is so much a public figure though, and he's attracted the attention of a fandom that isn't very gent isn't very gentle, to put it mildly. And so he routinely has people speculating out loud about the fact that he might not live to finish the series, and he gets really fucking pissed about it, which is understandable. I would be annoyed if people were telling me I was gonna, with such certainty, total strangers were telling me with such certainty that I was going to die before finishing some big project that I've been working on for a quarter century. But when you look at it, like, Martin has been writing the series since the early 90s. He's 71 years old. He seems to be taking constant detours into other creative projects. He writes at a glacial pace. I don't know. I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm generally reluctant. This is one of the reasons that I'm generally reluctant to, to start any kind of book series. Although, uh, I spent the entirety of March, when I wasn't watching movies off the list or writing blog posts, I was reading the entire Hannibal Lecter series by Thomas Harris, which I loved. That series, or, or like the first three books specifically is is like a masterpiece from the first page to like the last cha almost the last chapter and then that fourth book Hannibal Rising the prequel is 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 terrible but yeah otherwise i tend to stay away from book series my all-time favorite book series is probably mark z danielewski's the familiar about which i've done two podcast episodes at this point um and which i i'm convinced by now that he's just not going to finish it it was supposed to be 27 volumes but the reason it got paused after the fifth one or more likely cancelled is because the books themselves like the material objects are pretty ornate and they're apparently very expensive to produce and so you know because there wasn't a big enough readership the publisher pantheon was allegedly unable to justify the expense but yeah so that's been my reading lately although i just bought a few other books that i'll hopefully get to in the next couple weeks maybe this is maybe how i should focus how I'll focus these epilogues in future shows is, is to just use them to debrief about all the media that I've been consuming. Because another thing I consumed, apart from the books, is a six-hour podcast called Dr. Death, which was really good and which I frankly dived into um, and consumed its six-hour runtime in just a few days because I met this woman on Hinge and we had a nice rapport. And then we had, a, so we had a couple of Skype dates after chatting on the app. And the Skype date, incidentally, is, I think, a, exclusively a pandemic protocol. I, I don't think this is something I'm going to carry into regular life. But so she referred me to the podcast. She told me that she was really hooked by it, that it's really engaging and, and, and frightening. And it was really good. But I find lately that if I like somebody, then this is one of my strategies for trying to make it work, is to be like, hey, what's something that you enjoy? And then I go off and I try to enjoy that thing without telling them. And it makes for a nice way of like rekindling conversation two or three days later. Um, so that like rather than because it's weird if you've just met someone and and you liked them like obviously that's the incentive to go off and try the medium that they, the media that they like it's a nice unintrusive 
non creepy way to be to to get back in touch. I think three or four days later and be like, hey, I I read that book that you said you like so much, or I I watched the first few episodes of that series and I agree, I dig it. But anyway, so so I listened to the podcast and I enjoyed it, and then I reached out to her again and said, hey, I just finished Doctor Death. It was really it was really good. We we went on to chat about it on Instagram for a while, and I thought, okay, we were having a nice time, and I was like, okay, I've initiated the first two Skype dates. And those dates went really well. We talked for more than three hours on both occasions, and there was a lot of laughter, and I don't think there were more than like two or three lulls in conversation. So so we're very much on the same wavelength conversationally. And for what it's worth, I think she's really attractive, which is, I feels like it's something I should mention only marginally. So I'm thinking, okay, I've initiated two long Skype calls. I had a great time in both of them, and I'm definitely interested in doing it again. But is it too much activity on my end? to go ahead and initiate a third Skype call if it's also the case that I'm initiating all of the Instagram messaging. Because I have, I've, I think I've started every conversation that we've had and she's she's perfectly receptive to all of it and very, very friendly and engaged and lovely. But I do kind of think that that, that might just be her personality. Like she's just naturally very easy to talk to and very sweet and she gets back to people promptly. So in other words, I'm not totally sold on the idea that her engagement in these conversations has very much to do with her interest in me necessarily. I mean, I will concede that it does take two to tango in terms of conversation, and, and there's no way that you can have two consecutive bouts of animated three-hour conversation with somebody, both in the space of a single week, unless you are effectively like cream cheesing each other's bagels. But there's part of me that would like to reach out Okay, okay. L let's say I don't reach out to her for the third conversation. I leave the ball entirely in her court. Would you consider that a reasonable move? Or am I being petulant? Because I don't know, because I'm mindful of the idea that like, hey, if you're interested in somebody, then go ahead and talk to them. But being a fairly awkward, nervous, non-confrontational person myself, I'm wary of subjecting her, anybody, to that sort of situation where they where they, they're trying to communicate something and I'm just not taking the hint. Like, if her reluctance to initiate conversation is the hint, then I would prefer to take that hint instead of putting her on the spot, you know, to, like, articulate something that should be obvious that is, is uncomfortable to articulate. Anyway, that's a lot. Okay, so that's what I'm reading, and that's what I'm watching, and that's who I'm talking to. And uh, and that is this week's episode. I'll catch you up on all this on the rest of it uh, with the next episode. Uh, but yeah, thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.